now going to hear from Colin, who I know has an incredible word. Why don't you give, guys give Colin a hand as he comes. Good morning, all. Hopefully I'm on the air. I'm going to stand up here, so I'm a little bit out of the way of that. Um, the speakers, we're having a little bit of sound issue. So we're getting a bit of reverb there, maybe bring it down a bit or something. We've got to do a test on volume. And then I'm going into PowerPoint, which will take over. All right, so how's all the volume? Is that all right? Okay. I'll turn this on and yes, please now. Is it up there? Why isn't that? <laughs> it worked earlier. Sorry, folks. Sorry, folks. This is an interruption. Why is it not coming up on the other screen? Hang on. I'll put this dongle back in, make sure that's talking. <laughs> Go, Lucas. Do it. <laughs> All right. Um, Why is that? Sorry about this, Liz. Yeah, now, am I, am I? Yay, now we have lift off. All right. I have a mobile phone that gives me a word of the day and today's word was soporific. Sleep inducing was what the word soporific means. So hopefully I'm not going to be soporific today. Or as my dear brother would have put it, death by PowerPoint. What's that? Soporific means sleep inducing. <laughs> so hopefully I'm not sleep inducing today. All right. I have to apologize first of all, because last time I actually gave you an error I said that Jesus was of the tribe of Levi because I mistakenly put Joseph and Zachariah as being close relatives and cousins, but it wasn't, it was the wives. So John the Baptist is a Levite and Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, yeah, of the line of David. That's why they went to Bethlehem. Okay. All right, so today we're continuing with the Lord's Prayer. We started this a little while ago, part two, or if you go to university, it'll be 102, because 101 was first year, first course, so it was 102. And last time, we did our, I think that was 50 minutes, wasn't it? And we only touched our, and we di I didn't finish it, I apologise. And um, so, but we saw that our was 
the church community, um, can, can, yeah, the church family community and connection, as Sarah was saying the other day. So now we're going to race on and we're going to do our Father. We don't want to go too fast through this. And I reckon the more I meditate on this, the more I reckon that this is the revolution in praying, in ministry, in everything. I see in these just two little words that the whole of God's nature, his purpose, his being is described in these two words. It covers the gospel, covers salvation, it covers our destination and much more. It covers every, it takes the rest of the Bible to describe these two words in my opinion. Our Father, Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray. It takes from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Maps and Concordance in the Bible to describe it. And secondly, it's Jesus who is actually teaching them to pray. And Jesus is using these two words, our Father. He could have used anything like Heavenly Father or Lord God Almighty, God Most High. Any of these would have been acceptable, would have been more acceptable to the Pharisees, but it was putting God at a distance. He chose some very intimate words and personal. He was rubbing the, in the face of the um, Pharisees the doctrine that they had on God the Father because he's telling the disciples that you are to pray our Father. And see, in my opinion, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. This is from John 5.18, to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Making himself equal. The Pharisees would never regard themselves as equal with God. So I see that Jesus is saying in this that Jesus is speaking, right? You got the picture? Jesus is speaking and he's saying, you are part of my family. You are my brothers and sisters. And God Almighty is your father also. That my father is your father. Now, this is staggering when you start to think about it. And not only that, is that you are accepted by our father, God. Right? As we walk with him and we hunger and we live in the life, in the salvation life that he's given us, repenting of the thin, sins we fall over when we fall, etc. We are actually living in that relationship where we are accepted by God. Now, God the Father, is, to some people, is very difficult because we relate a lot of things in our lives to our earthly experiences, as we rightly do. But we've got to think in the kingdom process <coughs> whoever has my commandments that's right and keeps them he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him some pretty good promises here so far the next part I want to look at is that it's a God relationship but when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son, born of woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There you go, it is sexist. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out in this very scripture. Isn't it nice you can press that and they all go to the highlights, bold for you. It took a lot of work to get that actually right. One, I'm using the ESV. I choose the ESV because it is a literal translation and it allows me to go deeper into God's word than the paraphrased ones like message and even NIV is leaning towards it. By the way, there is a list of the English translated Bibles from Wikipedia. There's three and a half pages of them. So we've got a choice out there. Paraphrase is great for readability. God's word is great in all its forms. But I prefer the more literal ES, um, NASB, ESV, uh, New King James type things because I can dig deeper into and they've been looking into it for a lot. And because I'm using the ESV, they translate this as adoption of sons because it was actually from a Roman legal term, which I'll touch in a minute. And that's why they talk about the sonship. And now I want to touch on heirs. So what's an heir? What is an heir? Now I've got a surprise. Somebody doesn't know. Sophie, you're going to come for an interview. Uh, yeah. Stephanie, well then, it's good that you know your name because I don't. Come on up, Stephanie. <laughs> she has no idea I was about to do this, right? And I didn't know the right name either, so it's good. Yeah. Now, Stephanie, hold it up close so that they can hear you. In the natural. Yeah, that's no, all right. It's all, it's all done. In the natural. You are an heir, yes? Yeah. Yeah? Are we getting volume on Steph's there? No, that's right. It's on. One, two, one. Oh, okay, just hold me. up there closer. We go. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, a quiet voice. So what does it mean to you to be an heir in the natural in this world, you know, not in the kingdom of life? Who are you an heir with and what's it mean? Well, I'm like, oh, we're not in a kingdom sense. Not in the kingdom I'd sense. Family, in, like in your own family you're sense. Heir to your family, yeah. Yes. What's it mean? I guess to carry on like the values and the traditions they've set sort of thing. Right, right. Um, how about with inheritance? I feel bad, my mind just goes to money, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, money, money is a good sense, thing, in yeah. a worldly sense, very worldly sense, yes. Then, yeah, I'd say you inherit money or their possessions, things like that. Right, do you have that now? No. No. So when do you get it? When they die. When they die? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you can't wait for them to die to get the fortunes? Oh, no, sorry, no, no. But no. in a worldly sense, it's when you die. Yeah. So you don't have access to it now, do you? No. No, no, that sounded like she was disappointed. Um, 
So when we're talking about an heir in that other sense, yeah. do you think we have to wait for God to die? Ooh. No, I'd say no. That's a good answer. All right, thank you. Thank you. If we think of it in our natural sense, it becomes a conundrum. A confusing and difficult problem. <laughs> but now we're going to do adoption Roman style, and for those who are au fait, that is a Roman style font times New Romans, that's why I chose Roman style. Aha, uh -huh. yada yada. Okay, let's start. There was no Jewish adoption. Jews did not adopt children. A Scottish law professor, Francis Lyle, he showed that in the New Testament um, epistles, that the, the adoption that they were talking about was a Roman adoption. It wasn't Jewish and it wasn't Greek. And the, the Romans actually allowed people to build their family from outside their own family. And this wasn't what the others would do. So in light of that, when we're looking at the adoption in the New Testament, we have to look at it in the culture of the time. And that's why the ESV takes it as adopted as sons, because it's actually referring to the Roman adoption. And by the way, this is a law that I reckon is written by the rich ruling men for the rich ruling men. Okay? Women didn't inherit through their parents, they inherited through their husband's family when they got married. Different to ours where Steph will actually inherit from her parents, okay? Now, in the Roman world, it was very expensive to raise kids when you're a ruling Roman, when you're in the Senate and all those sorts of... They would keep their families to about three children, and you think we've got the problem nowadays? Abortion was very common in those days as well. They would terminate births to keep their kids down to three so they didn't have to spend so much money. Some of them didn't, but that's all right. That's, you know, but that was quite common in the Roman ruling classes. You could only adopt a son if you didn't have a son. Different to our adoptions, isn't it? And mostly it was done as males were adopted. Occasionally there was a female adopted, but you had to not have a child of that gender to be able to adopt that child. And the other part to that, written by males for males, is the adopting father, the wife of the adopting father, did not adopt the child. She was not the adopting mother. And I find that very interesting in, the, well, one aspect to it is that nobody nowadays could say that because we are adopted by God, we are adopted sons of God, that Mary, Jesus' mother, was our adopted mother. I think God puts little things into cultures just to make sure people don't stumble up as much as they could. 
Now, the father in the house in the Roman world, he had the right to disown or even kill his own natural son. Pretty powerful, wasn't it? They overturned the rule for killing the son sometime later, but they had the right to be able to disown or kill their natural son. And I think of God, he killed his own son. I'm sorry, but it just gets me. But he could not disown his, own, his adopted son. The adopted children were part of the family in perpetuity. He cannot disown, his, God cannot disown his own children. In the legal adoption in the Roman world, it was for the preservation of the family. It was not primarily for the child's sake. They also had legal, um, political affiliations when they did it, but it was for the preservation of the family. And so they only adopted proven adult children, proven adult kids, you know. They had to be adults to be able to continue their family. So things in babies wasn't happening. You could foster kids in Rome, but you couldn't adopt. You wouldn't adopt somebody until they'd proven themselves to be part of the family to continue the family. This was because the building block of the Roman society was a worshipping family. It was a worshipping family. It wasn't just the family. And the Roman household was a worshipping unit and it needed a male priest at its head to be able to do the sacrifices and offer the prayers in the household. So you can see why they actually, their adoption was primarily aimed at guys, you know. For me, that idea that it is a worshipping family put a new slant on some scriptures for me. Adoption into mission. Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was the head of the house in the worshipping household. So when he took on something new, then the whole household would follow because they trusted their father to be leading in the right direction. Peter, talking to Cornelius, the first Gentiles to be saved, said, you will be saved, you and your household. Interesting one, isn't it? Because it was a worshipping household. We've lost a lot, I think, of the culture of the Old Testament coming into the New where Abraham heard from God, you know, the, you know, he's taking Isaac up to be sacrificed, you know. What's it all about? Because it was a worshipping household and they trusted God altogether. And Paul with the Philippian jailer again, he was a Roman, but he used the same phrase, you will be saved, you and your household. Another one that struck me was when Rachel stole the household, uh, her father's household gods. It was something pretty serious because the father that she stole from was the worshipping head of the family. And when I come to the New Testament, I see this one. Husbands are head of the wife. 
That's Ephesians, Philippians, somewhere. Ephesians, somewhere. Ephesians 5.22. But this is not an authoritarian head. It's a responsibility head. And I really think that we've lost a lot. And I'm going to lay a challenge out to the men right now. Young and old. Make your household a worshipping household. Where you are leading your family into worship, into relationship with God. Now that does not start just once you get married. So it's just your wife, a place where your wife and family can grow. But it's before you get married. It's honouring the wife you will have, to honour your wife, you honour the wife you will have by your relationship with the girls before you get married. You can't say you've honoured your wife if you slept around. Sorry, it's a, I'm being pretty heavy here. But this is a challenge to men, to make their households a worshipping household where you're leading people, your partners into a place in relationship with God. There you go, men. Now we're coming back to out of intermission into adoption Roman style. In the adoption world, the adopted son took on a totally new identity. His old identity was no longer around. He had the, all the old obligations and debts were wiped out. His, his parents from the old family could not come and say to him, come on son, you're going to do this for me today. That was all gone. He was totally out of that family. He was a totally new identity in the new family. So much so that I, did, I haven't been able to find it again, but I heard in a sermon some time back that one guy got adopted into his, the new family and he actually married his full-blood sister because the identity was lost from that other family. So in our Christian life, bring it back to the spiritual, we have no obligations and debts to sin. I'm not talking about the natural family, you come to Christ, you walk away from your parents in the natural world, no. I'm talking about the life of sin and death. We have no obligations and that has no control over us anymore. And there are new obligations assumed in the new family. You carry the name of the, the new family. You carry the authority of the new family. In the... In the standpoint of their family, the son became exactly the same as the adopting father in worship. It was exactly the same as the adopting father. So they could do all exactly the same things in their worship life. And when I use the word worship, I'm not referring to standing up here singing. I'm referring to a life that's dedicated to God to understanding him, following him, drawing closer to him. Now, our identity is no longer our own, but is in God. This is where our new life is. Our identity is totally and utterly in God. The identity of the old family is no longer around. 
any debts that the son had when he was in the old family were forgotten. They could not claim on it because he was no longer that person again, any longer. So if I was adopted by Larry and I became Colin Hansen, anything, any bills that came to me for Colin Davenay, no, gone. They can't claim. It was totally out of the system. So when it came to, okay, also adoption was expensive in those days and our adoption was paid with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay. Now we come to something. Okay, inheritance, Roman style. <coughs> Excuse me, I need a mouthful of water. In the Roman law, all property was held jointly by the family. You didn't inherit when somebody died. That's why we are heirs in Christ. Because our inheritance is birth, not death. As soon as somebody was born into a family, whether adopted or naturally born, they had right to inheritance. It was jointly held, it was overseed and controlled by the father, but they had the right to inheritance. The prodigal son was not wrong to ask for his inheritance. He was totally dishonouring by what he did. That's why they, the, the um, rest of the villagers wanted to kill him. So it was birth, not death, that gave us the, the right. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs right now. Heirs in God and co-heirs with Christ. We have our inheritance now and can call on it. Don't live a pauper, in a pauper's mindset. Don't live like a pauper. And what I mean by that isn't going spending money. Too often we say, I'm not fit for what God has for me. God has chosen you to enhance the family. That's what the adoption was. It was you were chosen to enhance the family. You weren't chosen out of sorry because of who you were. It's not when I get to heaven type attitude. Yes, we will understand so much better, but it is now. This is what the inheritance and the adoption is all about. It's about here and now. But God's inheritance and adoption is far more than what the Roman law was. With God, it is an eternal kingdom. It is not just material wealth. It is authority in God. And you only have that authority if you're actually obeying God. If you go outside of God's will and God's purpose, you don't carry the authority of God. Now, that's another subject I could go on. But and there was no division of gender. There you go, Lynn, just for you. Okay. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now I find that these two little words really speak to me about the Father's heart. 
God wanted that all would be saved. John 3.17, he sent the Son in the world that all could be, would be saved. That the heart of the Father was to save all. People reject it, then they don't get it. And every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. This is the heart of the Father that is behind the words, our Father, and what Jesus was telling us. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Paul stumbles over his words in this. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I want to go through that again. That you may know, to understand, to see by it, to see and understand it. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The words get stronger, don't they? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? This is the heart of the Father when he says, you are adopted into my family. This is what it is now for each one of us. You are selected and accepted. So that means if we fall over and skin our knees and we sin somewhere, the first thing we should do, what does a kid do when they skin their knees? Run to daddy. Right? Or mummy. But we should run to daddy. <clears throat> now even the Holy Spirit witnesses to these things as well. The Spirit prompts us to cry, Abba Father. Oh, not quite the right Abba, is it? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist it. For those who are listening to this on SoundCloud, that is the Abba name, logo for the Abba song group. <laughs> Abba Father. The Abba actually is a, the intimate term for Father in Aramaic. That's like daddy. I have trouble with calling him daddy. Yep. But I put my mind to it often to increase my understanding of the relationship with the father. And not only does he prompt us to say it, but because he is prompting us, he is witnessing that God is our Abba. He is our dear daddy. Two words, our father. Quite powerful. Now I looked at Jesus' example and I'm wondering what did it mean when Jesus said I did what I saw the Father do and I said what I heard the Father say. To me it almost sounds like that Jesus couldn't make up his own mind and he had to wait for the Father to tell him to do things. No, no, no. He stayed in fellowship and relationship with the Father that he totally trusted what the Father was doing was the right thing and he knew it would work out. Jesus was a man like us and he had to follow on these things. His fear of God, fear of the Father, was just not wanting to miss what the Father was doing. Staying close enough to be able to know how the Father was working and how it was all going for around.
So finally, brethren, as part of God's family, God's adopted family, let us live in that inheritance that he has given us, that he has placed us in right now as to be the benefit to the family. God has chosen you if you have put your hand up and said, I want Jesus. God knew that before you ever did it, before time started. There's a psalm that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I didn't put that one up because I only thought of it afterwards. So let us delight ourselves in God and accept that adoption as sons. It is adoption into the responsibility that the sons had in those days as being head of the worshipping family. We're all called into the family of God to be able to do to be part of that family. So let us live in that place for him and with him. Thank you.